Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Oh, my goodness. We are picking back up in our study through the book of Romans today. How many of you are excited about that? All right. Awesome. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9. We're going to start the beginning of chapter 9. And if you want, towards the end of the message, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis. If you want to put your finger there so you can turn quickly, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Genesis 16, we'll start there towards the end of the message. Uh, But Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read through... Let's read through verse 13. I think I gave them that much, and I'm not going to get that far today, though. We might get to verse 7, but we'll read to verse 13. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul writes and says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named." This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come in power. And in wisdom, this is not trivial what we are doing here today. This is, this is life. This is, this is eternal. This is you. This is who you are, what you've done and you are doing. So I ask that you would help me. In myself, I'm inadequate to the task, but by your spirit, your word can be taught And it can transform lives. Illuminate our understanding today and fill us with your spirit. Wash us with the water of the word. Renew us in the spirit of our minds. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. A few words before we dive into the text. Um, To be honest with you, I, I find myself feeling a little bit of fear and trembling as we come to Romans 9, um, there's, there's probably no other portion of Scripture that I could teach that would test my character and resolve to faithfully do what God has called me to do. What God has called me to do, what God has called Keith to do, is to teach the Word of God with no regard whatsoever for our fleshly desire to receive your approval. Romans 9 through 11 includes some beautiful, glorious, 
awe-inspiring truth that at some points is going to be hard for us to digest. It's going to be hard for us to swallow. And my question is, why? Like, shouldn't the Bible be an easy read? I think we, maybe if we've never actually said that out loud, maybe subconsciously we think that, that why would there be truth in God's word that would be hard to digest? It shouldn't be just like a, a, a great meal that is perfectly prepared, tastes so good and sweet, and is just easy on the digestive system. Could there be truth, should there be truth in God's word? that maybe we have to choke down? I, I tell you this, after 20 years of studying this book and endeavoring to teach it well, there are a, a few, a handful of overarching conclusions that I have come to, and one of them is this. Christianity is not rooted in enthusiasm for humanity. Christianity is rooted in enthusiasm for God and his son, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again because that, that's really, really important, okay? That's paradigm shattering right there. Christianity is not rooted in enthusiasm for humanity. It's rooted in enthusiasm for God and his son, Jesus Christ. And if we come to the Bible expecting that somehow we're going to, at the end of our time in Scripture, we're going to celebrate our own self-worth and self-determination. If that's our expectation, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to twist the Scripture to satisfy that bias, or we're going to dismiss its authority altogether because the Bible's not about us. The Bible is about God and what he, who He is and what He's doing and we get to enjoy God and his sovereign action and grace in our lives. And at the end of it all, the point is worship. The point of studying the Bible is not to just get information. The point is to come to the end of it all and be, be on our knees in awe of him. And sometimes worship is conflicted. Sometimes it's conflicted. I think of the disciples in Matthew 28 when Jesus had risen from the dead and he had told them to go to Galilee and he would meet them there and he met them on a mountain in Galilee. And the Bible says this, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What it doesn't say is that the doubters didn't worship. I just think there was conflict in their minds about this Jesus that they had just watched die and now was risen from the dead. The, the, the presence of conflict in our minds doesn't mean necessarily that our worship isn't genuine. Sometimes worship is conflicted. It has to be. Because sometimes we find ourselves in that massive space between our finiteness and his infiniteness. Sometimes we find ourselves in that space and we don't have answers to all the questions. Sometimes the truth doesn't slide down the gullet so easily, but yet the point still, nonetheless, when we come in contact with attributes of God and specific details of his plan and his purpose, sometimes those things are like jagged peaks and fathomless depths that aren't necessarily easy to swallow. But the point is still worship. The goal is still to be in this place where we go, God, you're God, and I'm not. So, as we work through chapters 9 through 11, let me give you this encouragement, okay? As the questions come, and they're going to come, okay? Don't let those questions and some of those uneasy Feelings that we may have as we work through this text lead you away from worship. Rather, let it lead you to worship. Let it, let it lead you to that space where you are simply in awe of this God who will not be tamed. He will not be tamed, okay? So, with that said, what's the point of Romans 9? What's Paul doing here, okay? you remember when we left off in chapter 8, man, we were riding on a high, right? 
Chapter 8, maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It's at an emotional peak, and then it's like when you get to chapter 9, it's like we fall off the cliff. It's like Paul has gone from the height of joy to the depth of sorrow in an instant. And what's the point? What's he after? Here's the point. I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to work our way through the text. The point of Romans 9 is this. God's word has not failed. And you might hear that and you go, what's hard about that? That's great. That's great news. God's word has not failed. What's so hard about digesting that? You know, from our limited perspective, we might just take that truth at face value. A preacher stands up and says, God's word has never failed and it never will. And we shout amen and go, yes, glory to God. God's never failed on his delivering on his promises in my life. So, yep, that's it. I'm I'm great with that. But you know, for Paul and his readers, it wasn't quite that simple. It wasn't quite that simple. We are so far removed historically from the disruption that Jesus caused in typical Jewish religious thought that it might be all too easy for us to just skim over what Paul, the foundation that Paul is trying to shore up in Romans chapter 9. Jesus had turned things upside down, and here is the, here's what's at stake in Romans 9, okay? Here's what's at stake. I want to remind you of three key promises that were in Romans chapter 8, okay? Here's the first one. Number one, it's in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can we say Amen. Amen. Paul spent eight chapters, seven chapters building up to that verse. I think it's a summary statement of everything he said in chapters one through seven. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Christ is our propitiation. He is the wrath-exhausting sacrifice that opened the way for us to be saved by grace through faith to receive the free gift of the righteousness of Christ. Our salvation is not based on our righteousness. It's based on the gift of Christ's righteousness by, received by grace through faith. Okay? That's promise number one. Here's promise number two. It's in verses 28 to 30 of chapter 8. All things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. That's great news. What purpose? Paul explains it. It's our conformity to the image of Christ. And Paul said, in order to secure that end, God, those whom God has foreknown or chosen, he predestined and called to that purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ. All things, good, bad, hard and happy, pleasurable and painful, are serving that good purpose in the lives of those who love God and have been called. Amen? Here's promise number three. It's in verses 35 to 39 of chapter 8, and we know that nothing, everybody say nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. But now here's the question. Between 8 and 9, Paul, that sounds so awesome. That's great. Romans chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter you've ever written. Maybe, like I said, the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. But how can we be sure that all of those promises are true when we see that Israel, the Jews, God's people, God's chosen people, the, one, the ones who were adopted, the ones to whom God made covenant, the ones to whom God made promises, the ones to whom God gave the law, the ones to whom God gave a specific way to worship him, the ones to whom God promised a piece of real estate that's still being contested to this day. In light of their rejection of Christ after God had done all of that, how can we be sure that God's promises will be true for us? If Israel got all of that from God and they still reject him, they still reject Christ, has God's word failed? That's the question. Here's another way to ask it, okay? 
When we consider the promises God made to Israel and Israel's subsequent rejection of Christ, not every individual Jew, but the nation as a whole, when we consider that, are we to conclude that one, God really didn't choose them, so he lied to them. Therefore, God's not trustworthy. Or are we to conclude that God word is really not as powerful, Paul, as you say it is. In other words, God's not really able to do what he's promised in light of Israel's rejection of Christ. That's what's at stake in Romans 9. So what's Paul's answer? Let's look at it. Back to verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, Paul's not just speaking from his own perspective. He's not making stuff up. In and from his fellowship with Christ, in and from his belonging to Christ, in and from his desire to exalt Christ above all things, this is what he's speaking from, which means there's no way he could be lying. There's no way I could be lying because I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And then on top of that, he says, my conscience is testifying on my behalf. That alter ego that exists outside of you and me and judges what we do and say? Paul says, my conscience is saying, yep, Paul is speaking the truth in Christ. And then on top of that, Paul says, my conscience is not doing that by itself. The Holy Spirit in me is molding and shaping my conscience to testify on my behalf that I am telling the truth. I read all that and I go, Paul, why in the world have you got to go to so much trouble to tell us you're not lying? I mean, usually when somebody goes to that much trouble to tell you they're not lying, what are they usually doing? <laughs> right? Paul's not lying. Why has he got to spend all this ink to make sure we know that? It's because what he says next is so unbelievable. If we did not know that he was speaking the truth in Christ and his Holy Spirit-shaped conscience was testifying to that, there's no way we could believe what he says next. Verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. To put it mildly, I think, Paul has this deep and abiding sorrow, pain for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews. Why? Because they are cut off from Christ. And that pain, it, it, here's what Paul means by cut off from Christ. The Greek word is anathema. You know what it means? Doomed. It's heavy. They're doomed. They are doomed because they're cut off from Christ. And then here's the unbelievable part. Paul says, I could wish that I was cut off from Christ in their place. What? Stop and ask yourself. Can you think of anybody in your life that you love enough that you would be willing to spend eternity in hell so that they could be with Jesus forever. I, I, I don't know what to do with that, if I'm honest. I, I can't fathom that. I got, I got a, my wife here and my, my son that I... My daughter in, in kids' church this morning that I, I love dearly. But as much as I love them, would I be willing to go to hell for them? Would I be willing to be cut off from Christ for their sake? That's, that almost sounds crazy. Paul, you can't be serious. I can't, I don't know how to resonate with that. What seems more within reach for me is Paul's anguish and sorrow for his kinsmen who are lost. Now, I've, 
I've grieved for people that I know and love who don't know Christ. I, I, I have people in my life that I love that are not in saving fellowship with Jesus, and I grieve for them. But I am nonetheless challenged by Paul's incredible sorrow and unceasing grief over a group of people, many of whom he probably doesn't even know by name. And that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ for their sake. But here's the complexity of this text. Is that verse still up there? There's a Greek tense there that you can actually see in English. It's imperfect. Don't, don't worry about that, but just know, I could wish. What that means is, is that Paul has a genuine desire. It's a real desire. It's not, it's not, he's not just making stuff up. He's not just being emotional or theatrical. He really has a genuine desire and love for his kinsmen to the point he would be willing to be cut off from Christ for their sake. But here's the problem. That desire is stopped at desire. Something has blocked it. He says, I could wish, and I could go on wishing, but it's not possible. I can't be cut off from Christ for their sake. Why, Paul? I would point you back to verses 38 and 39 of Romans, of chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even Paul's incredible love for his fellow Jews is able to separate him from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, 28, all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good. You can't love God like Paul does and love people like Paul does and go to hell. It won't happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. It's a genuine desire, but it stopped right there because nothing can separate Paul from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to come back to that. Let's talk a little bit more about Paul's sorrow. What's generating this kind of grief for the Jews who are cut off from Christ, for lost people? What's generating that depth of sorrow? I would mention three things. Number one, Paul's love for Jesus. It is our love for Jesus personally that gives rise to our grief and sorrow for the lost. If we don't have grief and sorrow for those who don't know Christ, we best ask ourselves the question, do I love Christ? How could we, think about this, how could we believe in faith that Jesus alone is to be worshipped and adored and that he alone can save and offer grace and mercy? How could we believe that and not long for those we know and love to fall in love with Jesus. So I think it's Paul's love for Jesus that's giving rise to this sorrow. Here's the second thing. I think his recognition that love for Christ is a life and death matter is giving rise to his grief and sorrow. I find today in the church, capital C, a lot of indifference when it comes to the lost, those that don't know Christ. I think some Christians even try to anesthetize themselves, anesthetize their grief for the loss by convincing themselves that, yeah, Jesus, Jesus alone, but in the end, we're all going to be okay. Everybody gets the trophy in the end. If there's ever a point in Scripture that shatters that notion, it's right here, isn't it? Why would Paul grieve like this if this was a trivial matter? I mean, Paul has spent eight chapters in Romans trying to let us know, think all the way back to chapter 1 where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Think back to chapter 5 when he said, there's only two kinds of life. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And in Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. This is a life or death matter this is not trivial 
This is not religious preference. This is eternity. And Paul looks at his fellow kinsmen and he goes, they're cut off from Christ. And they're going to die. I think there's a third element to his sorrow. And that is his witness of just how far Israel has fallen. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's referring to biblical history. When Paul mentions the adoption, I think that's a reference to God calling his people out of slavery in Egypt. The prophet Hosea picked up on that. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where God speaks through the prophet and says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. He's talking about the nation of Israel. What about the glory? You remember how God showed his glory to Moses? A little taste. And to the whole nation on Mount Sinai? He didn't show that to other nations. He showed it to Israel. The covenants. Think of Abraham, Moses, and David. And then the law given through Moses to show the people how to live in those covenants. The worship within the law and the covenants was a specific way God gave them to worship him. And the promises. God promised Israel a blessing that would extend to all nations. And like I said earlier, he promised them a piece of real estate that's still being fought over today. Then Paul mentions the fathers and the patriarchs, and this is Paul pointing out the fact that to Israel belongs the genetic race from which the Christ would come. Jesus was born a Jew, and he is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that, Israel, by and large, has rejected their Messiah. So Paul, can we trust promises of God? Do you see how big and important this question is now? Can I know that there is no condemnation? That God says that to me through the Apostle Paul, that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Can I know that that's true? When God did all of this for Israel and promised all these things, he rained manna down from heaven for crying out loud, and they got tired of manna, he rained down quail. They were picky. Can I trust? God calls water to flow from a rock when they got thirsty. They get to a city like Jericho that's so fortified and and, 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 and they're going to take possession of this land that God promised them and he tells them, just march around the walls and I'll rip them down. God parted a sea. Parted a sea and swallowed up the Egyptian army that was breathing down their necks, and they still rejected. God, can I know, Paul, can I know that all things will work together for good? Can I know that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Which is why Paul this letter seems to have just fallen off the cliff emotionally. This is a big question. So what's Paul's answer? Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, Paul. That preaches well. We say that in church. We'll get a few amens. Can you prove it? For not all who are descended... From Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, but, and then he's quoting, we're going to read it in a minute in Genesis. God said to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is a massive statement. 
And his first piece of evidence, there's a lot more that we'll get to next week in the following, is Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story is that God promised Abraham, I'm going to birth a nation from you. But Abraham was old, and so was his wife Sarah, and she was barren. And, and you might remember that in Sarah's barrenness, in light of this promise that God had given them, that you're going to have a child, and from that child's going to come a nation, and from, from that nation, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Sarah got a little hasty. She got a little impatient because she probably looked at her husband and said, you know, we're not getting any younger. So this is what she did. Genesis 16, if you put your finger there, turn there. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, God later changed her name to Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. I know God's promised us, Abe, but I'm, things aren't working. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So Sarah jumped the gun, didn't she? And though Ishmael was born from Abraham's marriage to Hagar, Ishmael was not the child of promise. He was a descendant of Abraham, but he was not the child of promise. And so sometime later, God comes to Abraham. Flip over to chapter 18. He comes to Abraham, chapter 18, verse 10. And the Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I wish I had time to preach that. And, and at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. And then Abraham said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> Don't you love we get a little domestic dispute in Scripture? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Just, just notice how God is the one acting decisively here, isn't he? The promise is, Abraham, you're going to have a son. The realization of that promise is way beyond the capabilities of Abraham and Sarah, isn't it? They're too old. And from that son is going to come a nation. And from that nation is going to come a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to save God's people from their sins. So the realization of that promise is way beyond Isaac or Ishmael for that matter. This is why I said at the beginning, Christianity, our faith is not rooted in enthusiasm for our awesomeness. The joy of our salvation is not a joy that is rooted in, I woke up one day and I made a decision for Jesus. I got my head around things. And I went to God. The joy of our salvation. We read about it in the Psalms, if you caught it. God is the anchor of my salvation. We sang about it. Cornerstone. The lion and the lamb. Who can stop the Lord? 
That's our song, isn't it? But God. This is way beyond Abraham and Sarah. This is way beyond Isaac. This is way beyond you and me. It's way beyond Moses and David and the prophets. This is God doing what he does. So, sure enough, a year later, Sarah gets pregnant. She has a boy. His name's Isaac. And Abraham's excited. And he throws a big party for Isaac. But Sarah, she catches Ishmael, the child of Hagar and Abraham, laughing at all the hoopla over Isaac. Turn over to Genesis 21. Verse 10. After she catches Ishmael laughing, Sarah said to Abraham, verse 10, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, here it is, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the revelation that I think Paul got as he studied the Old Testament scriptures. God's promises were not made to every individual of generic, genetic heritage. God's promises are specific and according to his choosing. And here's the point that I think Paul came to. God's word will never fail because God is sovereignly watching over his word. Whatever he says, he will do. If God's word was contingent on anything, anything other than his sovereign will, it would not be sure and we could not bank on it. Paul has more evidence to give us, but I think there's another Example in this portion of Romans 9 that's not explicit, it's implicit. Paul doesn't explicitly say it, but it's there, it's clear, it's in the text. The other example, I think, of this truth that God, in order to know that the word of God has not failed, we cannot look to the nation of Israel we must look to the individuals to whom God specifically made promises. I think that's where he's going. And I think the evidence that that is sure is seen in the life of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. It was Isaac, not Ishmael. And there's more examples he's going to give. But I think the other example is Paul himself. Paul's a Jew. He is a genetic descendant of Isaac, of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. He is a Jew. And despite the fact that his love for God and his love for his kinsmen had spilled over to the point that he was willing to be cut off from Christ for their sake, it could not happen because nothing could separate Paul from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even his love for his kinsmen. That's why Paul's desire had to stop at just desire. His desire was blocked by the unfailing love of God. And that, folks, listen, that foundation that the promises of God are anchored to his sovereign grace, not the free will of man, is the foundation upon which this rests, Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a lot of God in there and very little of us. Now, Bradley, what's our takeaway from all of this? And I'm just going to be honest with you. I got back from Mexico on Thursday night, which, by the way, the flight. Can I just tell them real quick? We took off from Atlanta to Greenville, and I'm not kidding you. Jonathan said it. He could read the words Pelham Medical Center on the building. That pilot couldn't have been more than 1,500 feet off the ground in front of GSP runway, and he hit the gas and did this. <laughs> Storm in the, in the, on the runway. They shut the runway down. We turned around and went back to Atlanta. And, you know, I started to say I'm a patient man. I don't know if I could say that. I'm not speaking the truth in Christ right now. But I was about to lose my mind, Keith, it, sitting on this plane going, we're going back. We were right there. We're going back. But I, I, I got home from a great missions trip and a long flight home. And I, I came to my office, you know, Friday and Saturday some, and was reflecting on this text. And I don't know how long I spent just praying and asking God, Lord, how, how do I drive this home for people? How do, I, how do I give them something to really sink their teeth into and take away? And, and, and I do have some takeaways for us. But I want you to know that as we work through this portion, you, you know, a lot of churches avoid Romans 9 to 11 altogether. They just don't, they just don't even cover it. Because it's not one of those sections of Scripture where you're going to find sort of this neatly packaged take-home where I can just go home and go, okay, let me do A, B, C, and D. This is what I need to do. This is not a portion of Scripture where you come away going with something to do necessarily. You come away going, oh, God, how great you are. How marvelous are your works. How unfathomable is your faithfulness. You do what you say. And that's not always comfortable. It's not always the way I would like it. But you're holy. You're righteous. And you do what you do for your glory, and in your glory is my joy. So amen. That's not in my notes, but that, make that the takeaway before I give you a couple of takeaways. You read this portion of Scripture, pretend that you're standing in front of the most beautiful piece of artwork that you could possibly imagine, and all you want to do is take it in. And Some things are going to be hard. Your brow's going to furrow, and you're going to go, what? And I'm not sure, and scholars debate over exactly what Paul is saying, and there are mountains of questions, big questions that are being raised right now and are going to be raised as we continue to work through it. But this is the journey we're on, church, is we're not just, we're, we don't gather just so we can improve our quality of life with biblical principles. We gather because we want to know God. We gather because we've been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And he's told us this. He's given us this. And sometimes God tells us things about himself without really telling us why it's good for us to know it. I don't know why he chose Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau. I don't know. But I just know he did. And I know his word never fails. So if you're in Christ, I want to address two types of people here. 
If you're in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, let me say two things to you. Number one, know that God's promises to you are sure because they are anchored to his sovereign grace. Great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning in you. Those whom you foreknew, you predestined. Those whom you predestined, you called. Those whom you called, you justified. And those whom you justified, you glorified. Know that the promises of God to you are sure. Nothing's going to separate you from his love. No one's going to bring a charge against you that will stick. That's Romans 8.33. You are his because he's chosen you, made you his own, and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And that will happen. It will happen. Number two, to those of you who are in Christ, embrace the grief and the sorrow for those you love who are lost. Don't fight it. Don't try to anesthetize it. Don't let our culture dumb down that grief. All roads do not lead to God. There is only one hope. His name is Jesus Christ. So embrace the grief. Embrace the sorrow. It's a burden that's worth carrying. No, it's not comfortable. No, it's not happy, happy, joy, joy. It hurts. It's painful. It's so painful that Paul actually got to the point where he said, God, cut me off so they can be in. I'd rather have the pain of hell. Embrace that grief. And let it drive you to your knees. Let it drive you to your knees in prayer because you know that it is God who must act decisively in the lives of those who don't know him. That it is God that must take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. That it is God who must take those who are spiritually dead and make them alive. That it is God who must offer grace that awakens faith for salvation. God must do that. Unless you're born again, Jesus said, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. It's by the Spirit that we are reborn. Go to your knees and beg God to save those who are lost. And just like Brian taught us a few weeks ago, Brian Onkin, we're not responsible for the salvation of others, but we can and must be responsive to the God who is drawing people to himself because he wants us to participate with him. We're going to get to this verse in Romans. How will they know if they haven't heard? Blessed are the feet of those who carry the good news. You are the carriers of the good news. In your home, in your workplace, with your children. Parents, don't waste those precious moments by your child's bedside at night to tell them the truth. Children, don't waste those moments with your parents who don't want to hear. Maybe there'll be moments where the Lord just cracks open the window of their hearts just enough that the Holy Spirit could inspire you to speak the words of the gospel that will bring the power of salvation. Don't, don't, don't shirk the grief. Embrace it. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, let me speak to you. I plead with you today to say yes to Jesus. I pray that God will open your eyes to see just how serious this is. Look at Paul's grief. Look at his sorrow. Look at the anguish that he felt for his fellow Jews. I pray that the Holy Spirit will help you realize this is not a trivial matter. I pray that God will soften your heart so that you will know. Know what? That it doesn't matter how good or bad you are. How good or bad you think you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual your grandmother is. She cannot turn God's wrath away from you by her own piety. You cannot save yourself. 
You cannot make a good enough case for your own righteousness before a holy God. You can't do it. You might think your life's a mess. You might think you've got it all together. You might think you're somewhere in between. But know this, only God can heal the broken. Only Jesus can offer you grace and mercy. Only the Holy Spirit can make you new. There's only one hope. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, and in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. Bow your heads with me. Conflicted worship, Lord. Sober worship. There is, a, there is a time for celebration. And then there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to come to you with shouts of praise. And then there's a time to enter your presence and let my words be few. Perhaps this is one of those moments where we simply need to step back and go, your word has not failed. You do what you say. You, your, your promises are yes and amen. They're true and you work for your good purpose. And I, Lord, I don't want to read my own bias into this text. I don't want to I don't want to come to this section of Romans and twist it and make it say something that it doesn't say. I simply want your word to be heard and known. And I want what I think Paul was after was to give us a sure foundation so that we could know whether it rains or shines, whether I'm healthy or sick, whether I feel spiritual or not, if I'm in Christ, the promises of God are sure. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today or those who may watch this video or listen to this podcast that don't know you. They're like those kinsmen of Paul that are cut off from Christ and they're doomed we are dead in our trespasses and sins but I ask you Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the blind unstop deaf ears soften hard hearts transform and renew minds rebirth people as they say yes to you ask this now in Jesus name amen let's stand together we hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you you can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give thanks again for joining us